1: Welcome to episode 44 of the Life Lessons Podcast, and I usually say, how are you doing today, Sherry? But I already know how you're doing today, Sherry, because we're recording together at the beach side by side. Yes, we are. We've never done this before, but we're both sitting at the same microphone, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know what you've been doing all day long. It's a little weird because we're seeing each other on the <laughs> video screen, which is a little odd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have Jen twice, next to me go. and on the computer. Fabulous.
1: <laughs> so anyway, we've been at the beach. And so listeners, just know we've been having a great time. Yesterday, we
0: went kayaking. It was so fun. I've never gone ocean kayaking before.
1: Well, we were in, we were in the we inlet. We weren't really in the we ocean. We were at Merle's Inlet. But I mean, they still have tides there. And I'm going to call it ocean
0: kayaking. <laughs> inlet kayaking. It was okay. the inlet. It okay. was the inlet.
1: But I have not been <laughs> kayaking in over 10 years, probably. I think it might have been like 2010, maybe the last time I went, it was on the river. And so I was like, let's go kayaking. Let's go for two hours. And then when we were out there for about 10 minutes, I was like, oh, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We made it about an hour and 45 minutes. We did it. And I was
1: was a trooper. I was, I'm proud of myself for doing it. So now I know where to go and how to rent the kayak here. So I think it's going to be a regular part of my beach routine.
0: Yeah. Funny story though. We were sitting on the porch looking at the waves crashing in yesterday morning. And there was somebody out in a kayak and Jen said, I think I should get a kayak. And I said, where do you, where are you going to go? And she's like, what? Like the (laughs) water is right there. And I'm like, the waves crashing in were pretty big. And I'm like, I'm not really sure. And I'm an experienced kayaker. (laughs) I've kayaked for about 15 years now. And I'm like, I'm not sure you really want to take a kayak out across those waves to get to the smoother part. And I'm like thinking maybe down at the inlet would be a better place to go. And after we got into a few rocky waves out there, she was like, yeah, I think this is probably. And they were like nothing waves.
1: Those, <laughs> those waves were nothing waves because it was like a boat had gone by and it was like a little <laughs> bit awake. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you're right. I'm not going to be doing any any flat out ocean kayaking in the middle of the surf. So, <laughs> but now I know how to do it. I can go down. I think I'm going to buy my own paddle because I didn't like the paddle that I had when I rented it. It was like weird. So I'm going to get a paddle that feels good in my hands and then have my own life jacket, my own paddle, and go down
0: and rent a kayak. The best of all the world. I think that's a great plan. Yep. So I'm going to be a kayaker. That's fun. Well, each show we start with our good news segment. And today's good news segment comes from an email from Julie. She said, while paying for our meal at a restaurant last night, my husband discreetly asked the waiter for the bill of a table close to us. Our grandson was with us, and he began to ask questions such as, why are you paying for their bill? My husband replied, because he's military and it is a way for me to thank him. My grandson asked, well, how do you know that he's in the military? Well, said my husband, the tattoo on his arm says infantry, and he has prosthetic legs. My grandson, surprised, said, wow, I didn't even notice. I love so much that my husband had the opportunity to notice and act with kindness at a time when my grandson was there to witness it. I hope that the lesson is learned and that someday my grandson will teach his kids to notice others and to be generous as well. Yeah,
1: I love stories like that. And it's just a very simple thing to do. Look around, you know, I've I've had that happen to me before when I've been at a restaurant. A long time ago, I was at a restaurant with Will and someone, I don't even know who it was, but somebody paid for our bill.
0: That's secretly. Fun.
1: And then, you know, you just you pay it forward. Yeah. I guess you know, they saw a mom and their son out having a dinner and
0: somebody wanted to treat you.
1: Yeah. And it, it just was such a good feeling. And you felt like, wow, that was, you know, I didn't need them to pay my bill, but it felt so special. Right. And so then I could do the same for somebody else mm-hmm. in the in the future. Have you yeah. ever had that
0: happen for you? I haven't. I had somebody pay for my groceries once because I got up there without my checkbook. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you go to pay and you're like, where's my checkbook? And I was back before debit cards. And I had like diapers and formula on the conveyor belt. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to run home and get my checkbook. And this person behind me said, I got it. It's no big deal, Mm -hmm. which was amazing. I felt like I won the lottery and it was $25. But right. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, too, because somebody shared a kind of a similar story once. And they said they tried to offer to pay for something one day. And these people kind of got offended by it. And she had to go on to share that she had recently lost a grandson and she wanted to buy, I think it was like a baseball bat or a baseball glove for a little boy. And the mom was kind of weird about it. It was like, no, you're not going to buy my son this sporting goods product or whatever. And she said, well, you know, I recently lost my grandson and I don't have anybody to buy that sort of thing for. So there you, could be an underlying story there. And by being gracious and accepting somebody's goodwill, you could be really helping that other person. So graciously accept it if it ever yes. happens
1: and don't think about it as, why are you buying this for me? Do you think I can't afford to buy it for myself? Right, right, right. right. Instead, you realize they're coming from a place of of love and wanting mm-hmm. to help. So um, listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life, tell us an amazing story, or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And I've decided to talk about Branch Basics again.
0: I love your Branch Basics.
1: Well, Sherry had never used them, and I have them here at the beach. And I love them so much that I ordered you know, second set to have at the beach because I had my home branch basics and then now at the beach. Mm -hmm. So I got it just in time. And so one of the first things I did when I got here this time was get rid of all the other stuff and put it in a box. And they actually send you a box. The box that the branch basic comes in Uh has toss the toxins written on the side. So you can like use the box, repurpose it to put your other stuff in that you're getting rid of. Uh So I put them in that box. I still haven't decided what I'm going to do with them yet. They're sitting in the box. But just, you know, last night we, we cooked a dinner, we stayed in and that streak-free cleaner. It's
0: amazing. It
1: really is. You know, I, I've talked about it before. It, you use it, I've used it on my stainless steel at home. It's the only thing to make it streak-free. But after we cooked, I have a smooth top range here. The glass top. The glass top. And they can look so streaky after
0: you clean them, but I just Sherry, you used it. Uh, yeah, she was, she was like, look how amazing this is. I said, I know I already discovered that last night. Right. I used like her kitchen cleaner to get the grease off of it. And then I went back with the street cleaner behind it and the glass is spotless. Right. And so that, that's just my favorite thing because, you know, a glass top range can be hard to work with. And now
1: it's sparkling and bright right behind us. We're recording in the kitchen because this place is tiny. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to know more about Branch Basics, go to jenstevens.com slash Branch Basics and you can read all about it. And there's a special offer there for listeners and you can try it too. And I, I use essential oil to give mine whatever scent I want, but I've got peppermint in the foaming hand cleanser. So when I wash my hands, I get a little scent of peppermint. I just sniffed them. They smell pepperminty now. And uh, my kitchen cleaner is pepperminty as well. My laundry detergent, I put the peppermint in. But for the bathroom cleaner, I use tea tree oil because I don't know, that just smells like a clean bathroom to me for some reason. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: get yourself some branch basics.
0: And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to discuss how to reclaim your life after trauma. We are joined by Dr. Randall Bell, founder of Core IQ, an educational nonprofit organization that helps provide skills that everyone needs, but that they aren't taught in schools. Dr. Bell, who has been dubbed the master of disaster by the media, is here to discuss his observations as a researcher in the field of disa- disasters and recovery. His cases have included the World Trade Center, the BP oil spill, Hurricane Katrina, and other tragedies that have occurred across the globe. He has written several books, but today he is here to discuss his most recent book called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. So welcome, Dr. Bell.
2: Well, thank you, Sherry and Jen. Nice to see you.
0: Nice to see you. We are happy to be talking to you
1: this morning. And you know, I think this is something that a lot of our listeners will really relate to, especially after the traumas of the past year or so, right? It's been traumatic for a lot of us.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I started this book well over 10 years ago. I had no idea COVID was in our future, but I really took the time to do the research. And follow people's stories, and then the book came out right, you know, smack in the middle of COVID. I got COVID myself, so I've lived the trauma from it. So the neat thing is, is that recovering whether it's COVID or something else, the the basic game plan is the same. Exactly.
0: So I don't, I don't assume you went into grad school with a focus on disaster research specifically. What brought you here? How did you end up doing disaster research?
2: Well, the long story short is that in grad school, I focused on real estate development. I wanted to be a real estate developer, and I took all the real estate courses. I took a a complete extra semester at UCLA, and then I got into real estate, and I thought, you know, this is good, but, you know, I wanted something a little more, I don't know the right word, creative or challenging. Not that what I was doing or people in that profession aren't creative or challenging, but for me... The vibe wasn't quite hooking up. So I applied to law school and I got in. And then the day before law school, I thought, what if I take my skill set of what creates value and I turn it upside down and look at what creates a loss in value? That's never really been done before. And I was thinking in terms of Southern California with earthquakes and fires and landslides and that kind of thing. I had no idea the World Trade Center or the OJ Simpson case or all those big headliners were in my future. But I I made that decision and I've been just buried in cases ever since. So, you know, it was more than being a better, a good business decision. It was really a fascinating journey. And I got to know the people behind the statistics. And that's what led to this book because the people are far more interesting than the real estate.
1: So you didn't go to law school. You You decided not to
2: go to law school. Jen, before you were born, there's this thing called fax machines, and I, I faxed. I'm, I'm 52, so oh.
1: <laughs> I've been around since.
2: Fax. Right. <laughs> well, I faxed my resignation into law school. I never went to law school, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so instead, you went. And what, what did you, you? What did you study to make that a reality?
2: Well, there was really no college coursework on this topic because we're talking about disasters and the the economics of disasters. And so I plowed ahead and, and researched the best I could and developed methodologies. Bottom line is it landed on the federal government adopted the methodologies I developed. That's frankly why I get all these interesting cases. So, you know, it was a pioneering effort.
1: Okay. So it was really a groundbreaking program that you have really helped to develop from the ground up.
2: Yeah. Basically, that's right. Yeah.
0: So share with us just a little bit like, you know, your book, you talk about what are the three components? The the dive?
2: I get it. Yeah. the, The first section of the book's dive. It's basically the five stages of grief that we've heard about. But I interweave it with some other science and some stories of people that have really been uh, nailed in terms of tragedy. The second session is survive. That's where you get back on your feet. Uh, but the book's really about the third section, which is thriving people that it's as if the, the disaster or the, or the trauma woke them up. It woke up a, an inner giant that they were really capable of doing something amazing with their lives. And they did. I mean, truly amazing. And coincidentally, I happen to know these people. I grew up with some of them, but I've become friends or have been friends with with all of them. And I know their story. And I know when they were down and out in high school and disabled and, you know, disease and all kinds of things, depression, and today they're doing things that are just absolutely spectacular. So I'm trying to bring the science alive to the fact that this really works.
1: So it's the the people went through a tragedy, and then came out on the other side, and actually were able to thrive in a way they weren't thriving before they went through the experience.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like they were living, some of them were living really kind of comfortable, even luxurious lives, but they weren't really living what they were capable and built to do, you know, and the disaster kind of wrecked the facade or you know, just the comfortable thing. And then it just, like I say, it woke up this inner giant and they, they're doing phenomenal big things.
0: That's amazing. I think so many people, we have a Facebook community of almost 10,000 people. And a lot of people, they'll, they'll post daily and they ask for advice or suggestions or it's all life. It's this happened to me and I can't put it behind me. I don't know how to move on, sort of that kind of thing. So when I came across your book, I was just like, I feel like this could really be helpful to people to see. I think people get stuck. And I've seen this firsthand with my husband, he had a traumatic event that happened to him. And he really got stuck, he got stuck in that depression stage. And he stayed there for a long time. And he describes it now as he got knocked down and didn't know how to get back up. And then he started to Kind of recover, but he was just barely surviving then, right? and it wasn't until he had a real mindset shift that he thought, "Is this all I've got? I want more and And he's moved into the thriving now, but so often we do see that people get stuck in that survival mode and they forget what it's like to go after their dreams and to go back to that where i I'm gonna conquer the world that they had when they were younger. Because life has beaten them down a little bit or whatever.
2: Yeah. It sounds like your husband's story is all too typical where people get stuck in the depression. My approach is depression and anger and denial and, and shock. Those are all normal responses. That's nature's way of working us through the cycle of trauma. That's why I tell people when you read the book, don't skip chapters ahead. Just take it one. You got to process each stage, the shock, the denial, the anger, the, you know, the bargaining, and then you land on depression. And on depression, again, very normal, uh, nothing to be ashamed of. But if you get stuck there more than two or three months, it's time to find some professional help or or do something or reach out to somebody and accept some help. Trauma recovery is not a solo exercise. You know, a lot of people with our pride and, you know, do it are yourself kind of thing think they can work through it on their own. That's not a winning strategy. you got to reach out and work through the depression. Then you get into the survival mode where you start experimenting with some fun things. And then you really kind of blast off more in in the thriving mode. But all of the processes are normal nature's way of taking us through healing from a trauma.
1: So when someone's looking for help, if they if they're stuck in that depression mode, just find find a therapist. What what do you recommend for that?
2: Yeah, right in the very first chapter, I, I want people to heal, and uh, the, and the first two things are sitting in the fire. And well, let's talk about sitting in the fire. I learned that term up in San Quentin prison where I volunteer, and and. Sitting in the fire means find somebody you can trust. It can be a therapist. It can be a friend. But they, they got to be somebody that doesn't give anecdotal advice that can wreck things. This sits and l- frankly listens. That's why they call it sit in the fire, because it's difficult. It's embarrassing. And you're talking about ugly stuff. But somebody that will not gossip, not share your story without your permission. Uh, therapists are great because they lose their licenses if they do that. I'm not saying none of them do, but the chances are low. They're trained in in both uh, not giving untested anecdotal advice and they're trained to keep their mouth shut. So sitting in the fires is really essential. The other really key thing, and I've got at my office uh, two thick binders. In fact, I got them right here. They're about this thick. And on science, out of Harvard and other universities uh, on, on meditation or grounding, deep breathing exercises has a very measurable physiological effect. You can actually watch the areas of the brain that are healthy grow with simple deep breathing. And people say, well, that's just too easy. That, you know, well, easy doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It really does work. So those are the dynamic duos that will really get people healing right off the bat. But then there's several more in, throughout the book, but I want to kick people off with those two because there's so much science that proves that those work.
1: So yeah, I, th- I think that's important. Finding someone. Yeah, I think it's often easier to talk to a third party, like a therapist, than someone that you know, because you're. it's hard to open up sometimes to people that you know and be honest with them.
2: Yeah, and it can also be re-traumatizing for, or traumatizing for them to hear about it whereas a therapist is trained in terms of hearing difficult stories of others. And it can really wear down a friendship because, you know, dealing with trauma is kind of rinse and repeat. You don't tell your story once. you got to kind of, sometimes you feel like a broken record telling the same thing to get it out of your system. And that can really wear down a friendship. So you got to be careful about that.
0: Right. And I'm a big fan of group therapy because I think it's very powerful for people to hear that it's not just them that other people deal with traumas and other people, if you're a victim of abuse to know it's not just you, other people have been victims of abuse. And I think it's when people are um, having a a traumatic event, occurs to them, they tend to self isolate because they feel shame or victimized. But when you sit in a room with other people and you realize that, you know, it really, what has happened to you has happened to other people. It's not just you. And there's no reason to feel shameful because you may feel like, oh, this was happening behind my closed doors. But what you don't know is that these were happening behind the closed doors of other people all up and down your street.
2: What a great point, Sherry. And and guilt and shame are a big part of the conversation. Throughout the book, I talk about guilt versus shame. Guilt is where we did something wrong. You know, so we apologize, we take responsibility, but we we made a bad choice. That's guilt. But shame is, Shame is, I'm ashamed that in my case, I talk about the trauma I had in the book that I was born with a congenital congenital heart defect. I had open heart surgery when I was 11. And that was, that was rough. And that was something I buried. I did all the classic mistakes. I never talked about it. I've been talking about it now with my cardiologist. That's kind of my trusted person. She understands the, the deal and I've healed from it. But Yeah, shame is something, I didn't do anything wrong, but I felt ashamed about it. Or, you know, people in prison, they grew up in, some of them grew up in uh, families where there wasn't enough money, or dad was in prison. They felt a lot of shame about that. They balled it up inside, they got triggered, they did something horrible, and now they're in the prison for the rest of their life. And uh, part of the process is them to take responsibility. So shame and guilt, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's uh, critical to understand.
0: So, you know, it's acceptance of this has happened, right? That's part of your whole grief process is you get to the acceptance and then you start to heal. So what's the next step after you feel like you have put things right in your heart and your soul with what's happened and you're ready to move past it?
2: Well, you know, once you get into kind of step six, where you confront it and sit in the fire, the next thing is you kind of sort it out. There's a lot of untangling. I mean, all great lies have an element of truth. And so, in other words, if there's a trauma, there's there's nuggets, and some of them are bad, and some of them you want to retain. You don't want to throw out everything. So there's an untangling process. There's an exploring process. This is really kind of fun, where you kind of test new life skills out. Maybe a new hobby, maybe a new interest, maybe a new friendship—that kind of thing. And then there's a process of acceptance where you hold yourself and others accountable. Um, you know, some people don't are afraid to pick up the phone and report abuse. If there's a crime that's been committed, the police should be notified. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Denise Brown and the uh, O.J. Simpson. You know, her, ch- her charitable foundation. I was on their board of directors because she inspired a lot of primarily women to have the courage to pick up the phone and call the police. But you got to get acceptance and holding everybody accountable. And then you kind of land on an awareness, a a mindfulness of uh, your inner strength and and a sense of transformation. Once you've kind of covered those areas, you're ready to get into the thriving mode.
0: I hear you. The word confidence keeps coming to mind when you're talking. So a person who goes through traumatic events, I think they often lose confidence in themselves and even the people around them. And I I hear as you're talking, all those steps that you talked about are ways that people get their confidence back, even from making a new friend.
2: Yeah, that and a number of, you know, it's whatever works for you. But yeah, getting your confidence, uh, daily affirmations, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, hey, I'm strong. Hey, I'm healing. Hey, I'm giving myself a break. But, you know, having a conversation with yourself to remind yourself of these kind of principles, that's another one that really kind of helps build confidence. In fact, my cardiologist was just talking about the other day with (laughs) my last examiners, it's like, Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. It's in my book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. And, and again, it's that whole cycle that you were just talking about before, both of you, with shame and not having the confidence to reach out. You, know, you mentioned the example of the abused women not wanting to admit it because you're ashamed that it's happening to you, not wanting to even look for help because you have to then have the confidence to say, I'm worth getting help.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I talk in the book about worthiness and value. And the word worthy means comes from, derives from the Latin word worth or value. Everybody has value. Everybody. And acknowledging that in ourselves is really an important part of that journey.
1: Right. Because you can have that stuck in your head. I'm not worthy of getting help because I did this to myself or I'm part of this. And, you know, I, I share the blame. And then you are just like, I'm, you know, you don't get the help that you need at all.
2: Yeah, yeah. Anybody that tells you you're not worthy in any respect is uh, full of baloney. That's, right. that's a myth. Yeah.
1: And they might tell you that to control you, for example, to keep you from,
2: from oh, yeah. breaking out. Well, a lot of trauma is caused by abuse, abusive organizations and abusive people. And when we, you know, and part of the process, again, we're covering a lot of territory here, but that's great, is getting out of toxic relationships, whether it's with a person or an organization that is, uh, you know, implementing too much uh, control or, you know, frankly, any control, that's not okay. And and we got to get, a, you know, to a safe place to heal. I mean, re- the, before I even start the book, I say, if you're currently in a, a toxic relationship, forget this book and get out of that situation, then you can heal. But you can't heal from a mess that you're in the middle of.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And then you said you said toxic organizations. And I don't think most people think about that. But when you said that, you know, I told you, I told everybody just, you know, a minute ago, but my husband having this this period of struggle. And then he kind of found himself and he was working for an organization. And about second year in, it got very toxic. Lots of mind games, disorganized management style, lots of blaming. And he said to me, I can't do this anymore. I'm feeling myself slipping away again. And he said, I have to quit. And of course, I'm like, what are you talking about? You cannot quit your job. (laughs) But he did. He said, I love you, but I have to quit because this is not good for my mental health. And he walked away from his job. He found a new one. He's doing so much better. And I did see him slipping away. But of course, I had that fear of you can't just quit a job without a job. But he did get a new job and he's doing so much better and he's much more positive. And now he's back to what's next? What can I conquer next? So, I mean, you nailed it right there. I, from the practicality standpoint, was trying to push him to stay in a toxic
2: workplace.
0: And that was absolutely wrong of me. Husband, if you're listening, I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, kudos to your husband for having that self-awareness. A lot of people kind of live in the silent suffrage, you know, and put up with these, these situations. It can be a company. It can be a high-demand religion. It can be high-demand politics. It can be some of these self-help groups. Any place where there's these manipulations and deceptions and uh, blame, like you, you mentioned, those are toxic. And the same thing with individual people. They do that. They have the same techniques. If you look at the way manipulators and abusers work, they they use. They go from the same playbook. But that's tra- that's traumatic, and you got to get away from it completely. So I'm glad he did.
0: So, can you share with us a story of this in action? This, yeah, what? tell us a story about somebody who went from trauma to thriving.
2: Well, sure. There's a, about a dozen of them in the book, but one that comes to mind is Jerry Jewell. Jerry, you may know from ABC's Facts Alive, she was uh, cousin Jerry. She's, she's the first person to ever star in a network television program who's has a disability and she, I
1: remember her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, uh-huh.
2: yeah she just for, she just starred in the HBO's Deadwood. I went to high school with Jerry. I knew, uh, I, I knew her sister who sadly passed away and Jerry, I just had Easter dinner with her. We're close. And she had, she was born with this disability and she and her family looked at it square in the eye and they said, okay, we have two options. We can buy Jerry a, you know, a recliner and get her a TV and she can just kind of go through life watching TV and being as comfortable as possible with this disability, or we can just tell her, you know, Jerry, you're as smart as anybody else. Get out there. And that's what they did. They said, you go to college, you know, and of all things, Jerry went into stand-up comedy. And that is terrorizing to me. I mean, getting up in front of a group and trying to make people laugh, you know, intentionally. I make people laugh unintentionally, but that's a tough gig she did that she got the tv show now she's inspired millions of disabled people around the world with things and she is a living breathing example of these principles of you know she works she's worked through the depression she's worked through the anger she's worked through the bargaining all the way through with experimenting with different things not everything she did touched you know turned to gold but she just kept going She's upbeat. She, you know, in terms of affirmations and, and reminded herself who she is, she's a pro at that. And today she still has bad days. I have bad days. We all have bad days if we're honest about it. You know, on Facebook, we put our fa- our best face forward, but in real life, you know, it's it's a mix. But, you know, she is a post-traumatic thriver. She was born with her trauma and she's, she's done wonderfully. And I've sat for hours with her going through her story. It's in the book in terms of exactly what she did day to day to make this happen. That's post-traumatic thriving.
1: So really anybody who has had, you know, I, I guess I never thought of something you're born with as a trauma, right? You know, I thought it was like you know, when, when we were introducing you, talking about, you know, the World Trade Center, the oil spills, Hurricane Katrina, those right there, you know, just happening kind of a thing. But The fact that you can be born with like yours was a congenital heart issue and that was your trauma. And so I think we have a lot of listeners who have the types of traumas that Mm -hmm. you just described with Jerry and having to work through it. So, you know, what's the difference really between someone who finds the resilience that you're talking about versus someone who doesn't?
2: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. There's acute drama and where, where it happens all at once, like an atom bomb. And I literally worked on an atom bomb case where people were in the bikini Atola at a nuclear test across the lagoon. And some people are born with it, and it's more of a chronic trauma. It doesn't really matter. To answer your question, in terms of what differentiates those who get stuck in the dive stage or the survive stage and, and those who really blast off and thrive, it's a conscientious decision. It's just a decision that says, this really hurts. This really bites. I mean, this this is difficult, but I know I got it in me and I can beat this. In fact, I can not only beat this, but I'm going to tap into this energy from this trauma. And let's face it, trauma generates a lot of energy. I'm going to tap into it for something good. And they go for it. It's it's an attitude. And it's that decision to go from die, survive, to thrive.
1: So it's a mindset shift where they, they just decide to take control.
2: Yeah, it's 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 an attitude. And some people say, poor me, I can't do it. And they're absolutely right. If that's what your decision is, you're not going to make it. But if you decide, I'm going to make it. And here are tools and here's science. And here's examples of people that have done the same thing. And I've got my own story that, cha- you know, this is one chapter in my book, but the final chapter isn't written yet. And I'm going to write it the way I want it those kind of empowering ideals are, are really what propel people towards thriving.
0: You know, it's that whole adage of persistence pays off. So I think you have to have a persistent attitude of, I mean, you could wallow in self-pity or you could sit in anger, but if you take that anger and you make it and turn it into a positive That I'm going to persist until I am successful or I'm going to persist in achieving my dreams. And you take all that energy that you could have spent being angry or sad and you turn it into a positive. It's the same energy. It's what you do with the energy.
2: Yeah, well said. Uh, it is a, it is an energy. And anybody who's been through a trauma, and by college age, sixty-six to eighty-five percent of the entire population has been through at least one trauma. It's gonna it's gonna inevitably gonna hit us all. And that energy is there. It's how you tap into it. You know, people get their anger addictions are very real things. Self-medication, workaholism, drugs, alcohol, all that stuff is to mask the pain of unresolved trauma. Unresolved trauma is the number one problem facing the world. It really is. It's not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's not crime. It's not violence. It's not any of that stuff. Those are symptoms of unresolved trauma. That's why this conversation we're having is so critically important. Because if we have the skill set, we're not taught in school how to resolve a trauma and get through it and heal. I mean, imagine. Don't worry about the drugs and alcohol and crime. That will naturally go away as we address the real issue, which is unresolved trauma, particularly childhood trauma. That is the thing we got to get at and help people heal.
1: Now, I've got a question for you. I'm sure in my mind, this is popping up, and I'm sure probably with a lot of listeners as well. It brings to mind you know i have a family member that that is, is someone that i love very much who i know is going through you know the pain of unresolved trauma from childhood so what do we do as family members when we know we've got a family member that we love who's stuck in a place and cannot push past it you know not not at the mindset of i can get through this i can i or not even really recognizing it how can we as family members help someone gently who may be Stuck here, or maybe we don't need to be gentle. I don't know. What would you suggest?
2: Well, Jen, that's a biggie because I'll just share my own family, and he's my brother's open about it. My, my brother's are a recovered alcoholic, uh, he's been sober for 20 years, and he's a phenomenal person doing, talking about post traumatic thriving. He's thriving in big ways, but you, know, you don't want to become an enabler. <laughs> That's one thing. And sometimes tough love is good. And sometimes people just got to learn their lessons. That's why it might be a good idea in those situations to, is to go to a therapist and say, there's a situation I want to be helpful. How can I be truly productive and not get in the way of their process? Because in some cases, people just have to hit rock bottom. They got to w- wake up one morning under the, a freeway overpass and hit rock bottom before they'll really turn it around. Or every situation is different. That's why that's so so critically important. But it's also important to get some good professional advice on that, so we don't enable and make the situation worse.
1: So really, the part when you see that you have a family member really struggling, go yourself to a counselor and ask for help with how to manage that.
2: I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I have another situation in my family where where I have a beautiful. I, well, I don't want to give, <laughs> I want to respect other people's story, but a beautiful girl, she got in, in the family, she got into heroin, you know, on all the horrible things that comes with, and the family was enabling because we love her and we wanted to help her, and it just kept going downhill. That, once the enabling stopped, she hit rock bottom, and, and she's been thriving for years, beautiful family. It really can turn around, but we just don't want to, we, we don't want to mess it up for them out of, out of uh, a, a desire to do, you know, good for our loved ones.
1: That makes right. sense. We, you know, we had an episode recently about codependency and we, we talked about some of that and, and the enabling that right. you can do if you're stuck in that codependent relationship.
0: Well, and I think people are born helpers. And one thing that often happens is a person ends up with a family member, a loved one who is struggling and they end up eventually get being pulled down with, That person who's struggling, Um, you know, it's like that I was a lifeguard. And the one thing they teach you is if you go to save a swimmer and they start to pull you down, they resist your attempt to save them, let them go. And so if nothing else, by you yourself going to therapy to get help and dealing with your loved one who's drowning, that that's your life preserver. That's going to help you from getting drugged down with that person.
2: Yeah. We always want to practice. The, the, the main theme of all of this is to go from self-medication, things that aren't healthy, the mask, the pain to self-care. And that means taking care of ourselves and taking care of others, being generous, but not just to others, to ourselves, being gracious, not just to others, but to ourselves. So there's a, there's a balance there. And I love your metaphor with, with uh, life-saving because that's right. That's exactly the point. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: So I, I, you just bring up so many good points and I suspect there are going to be a lot of listeners who listen to this and realize that they may be coping with traumas in a way they didn't even realize that were are holding them back. That they might be held back in life a little bit from things that have happened to them that they haven't quite recovered from. And Jen and I um, are active in the intermittent fasting community. And we have a lot of members who talk to us and they're struggling and they're struggling with their intermittent fasting life, or they have struggled with weight loss their whole life. But when you get to know them and you start talking to them and you start really getting to know their patterns, what you find out is they are self-sabotaging themselves because somewhere deep inside, they don't believe that they deserve to be successful and be at the weight they desire or to, you know, be happy or be beautiful. And you talk about self-medication and unfortunately food is a self-medication. And so, you know, not only is that affecting their, their mental health and the way they feel about themselves, but oftentimes it's affecting their physical health as well. So it's, I mean, clearly this trauma is affecting people's entire lives as a whole. It's not one, one area
2: absolutely correct the you know i'll use myself as as a bad example again i wasn't taught when i had open heart surgery the doctors at age 11 the surgery was over the stitches came out and they pat me on the back and said go have a good life but there was was no discussion about what i had been through i mean it was pretty rough you know without going into it you know open heart surgery is not a walk in the park And that trauma laid dormant in my life for decades. I didn't know it. I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. The guy who came up with the term post-traumatic stress disorder is a guy from Vietnam. He's in the book. He's a friend of mine. His name's Shad. And he explains the traumas he went through. The point is, is that, you know, if we don't address it, if we're not, and as a little kid, I wasn't taught, I wasn't given a counselor. I wasn't My parents were as embarrassed to talk about it as I was. So it was all kind of buried. We did all the classic things that were wrong. And I'm not blaming my parents, I have wonderful parents, but that's what we did. And so, yeah, the eating, the workaholism, the drugs, the alcohol, all of that. You know, we may look like a a super achiever being a workaholic, but it's just masking our problems. Eating, you know, who, who doesn't love, you know, delicious foods and cooking and baking and all these things, that's terrific. But overeating is masking unresolved trauma. It all comes down to unresolved trauma. I lived it myself ever since I met with this cardiologist and she identified the post-traumatic stress unresolved trauma that I was going through. It's healed. I can talk it now, about it now. My blood pressure doesn't go up and I don't get bashful and all the things that I tried to do in the past to shut the conversation down as quick as I could. I'll talk about it all day long. But that's because I've healed from it. And it's the same thing. I guarantee somebody who has decent uh, uh, eating disorder, there's something going on behind that. We tend to look at the, at the surface level band-aid issues and not what's really going on inside.
1: That's huge. I really think that it is. You know, it makes me sad for 11, 11-year-old you. No one thought that that was a traumatic experience for you. And the doctors were like, all right, we fixed you. Bye. And it, it stayed with you through adulthood.
2: Yeah, it did. And growing up in Southern California, where you take your shirt you know, you go to the beach and you take your shirt off, there's this colossal scar and all the kids are wondering what's going on. That that was just this lingering trauma. So I get it. I've lived it. And, And I'm not special. Virtually everybody has had a trauma of one kind or another. But we got to have this conversation, educate people, understand it, and go through the processes. Because here's the good news. The science is so good out of Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago, all the great UCLA, of course, where I went. There's such good science so that the the information is there. That's what I've worked for 10 years to compile so that if we can just apply these simple concepts, we can heal from it. It's not human nature to bury it. It's the opposite. A lot of things we do naturally out of evolution or whatever you want to call it is exactly the wrong way to do it. The way to, to heal from it is to do the opposite. Do talk about it. Go see a therapist and be proud, loud and proud about it. You know, do all these other things. They work.
0: Yeah, I agree. I say often on this podcast that when we share and we're able to be vulnerable and open up and talk to people, that we heal. Mm-hmm. Not only do we heal ourselves, but we help start a healing path for other people. And so I love what you're doing. I love that you're talking about it. I love that you're open and that you came and talked to us today because. I hope that it starts a healing path for somebody who's listening today.
2: Thanks, Sherry. That's all I want to do. I'm not in this for the money. People think you write books to make money. I'll tell you, the French fry captain at Burger King makes more per hour than I did. <laughs> this book. I, I put I put the book on um, Kindle for 99 cents. This is not about uh, you know me uh, building an empire.
1: You don't get rich from one book at a time.
2: (laughs) You know, the the thing is, I've had this unique career. I've sat on coconut tree logs with people who have lost children to the nuclear test programs. I worked on the World Trade Center. I had people hand me flyers saying, have you seen my dad or have you seen my mom? It really ripped your heart out. You know, I, I sat at the kitchen table with Nicole Brown Simpson's family. I've had these unique experiences. And I thought, you know what? I'm getting close to retirement age and I'm a lousy golfer. I got to do something and I got to take these lessons and I got to make them available to people. If they want them great, if they don't, they don't. That's fine too. But I got to at least do that because already I've seen it really helps people. I've gotten the feedback and that's all, that's all it is. We're all in this together. There's great science. There's great solutions if we understand the problems correctly. And uh, that's what it's all about is, is thriving at the end of it all.
1: Absolutely. So tell listeners how to find you and how to find your work.
2: Oh, well, I'm easy to find. DrBell.com. And send me an email. I'd love to hear the stories. i love to hear feedback. I love if there's something that, that did or didn't work in the book, I'd love to hear about it because uh, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be updating this book and, and getting this keep, keeping this conversation going. The book's on Amazon. It's in every bookstore, Post Traumatic, Thriving, And uh, as I say, I I really greatly appreciate the conversation today, and hopefully it continues with you and your listeners because it's so critically important to us all.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
0: Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. Today, we are excited to talk about Dry Farm Wines again. So we both really enjoy having a glass of wine now and then, especially when we have something to celebrate, or maybe we've just prepared a delicious dinner that is deserving of a delicious wine pairing, or maybe just because we're hanging at the beach and celebrating life, celebrating a game of Yahtzee. That's what we did last (laughs) night. By the way, oh, and everyone,
1: Sherry crushed me at Yahtzee. I was having a very bad Yahtzee (laughs) night.
0: We usually play three games so we can determine the winner. Yeah, well, it was not me. <laughs> I was the clear winner last it's night. It's true. <laughs> Jen and I are both very competitive. If you didn't, yeah, you didn't hear our our games episode. But I do love Yahtzee, even if I lose. Yeah, so was, I have.
1: I'm optimistic. Maybe I could win. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but neither one of us really love how we feel after drinking mass produced wines. We're just kind of groggy in the morning. We don't sleep well. I wake up kind of. With heart palpitations and insomnia, and I just don't feel well after drinking commercial wine. Because most wines sold today are mass-produced, and they contain high levels of sugar, alcohol, and up to 76 different FDA-approved additives. Dry farm wines are different. They have strict criteria when it comes to how their wines are farmed and produced. If you want to learn more about it, you can listen to episode 114 of the Intermittent Fasting Stories, where Jen interviewed the founder of Dry Farm Wines, Todd White. So we are thrilled that they are partnering up with us here for the Life Lessons podcast. If you go to dryfarmwines.com forward slash life lessons, you'll get an additional bottle for just one penny in your first shipment. And make sure to go through that link, dryfarmwines.com forward slash life lessons You can get one shipment or you can sign up for regular shipments at an interval that works for you. It is easy to skip shipments or even add extra shipments at any time. And every purchase you make helps support the Life Lessons podcast. Absolutely.
1: And you're going to want to get more shipments. That's what happened to me
0: when I first (laughs) heard about it. I
1: was like, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, I heard about it from Melly Avalon on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And I got the first shipment and it's different. It's it tastes different. The wine is not like what you're used to. It's like lighter. It's a whole different experience. But what you once you get used to it, even Chad, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a big difference. So that's what we drink at home now all the time. All right. So next we have a segment we call our listener-led lesson. It might be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today we have some cooking tips from Carla. Carla says, if you're making tomato sauce or marinara and your sauce is too acidic, rather than adding sugar... You can simmer a whole peeled carrot in your sauce, then remove the carrot before serving. The carrot reduces the acidity in the tomato sauce by adding a subtle sweetness. Yeah, that's a great idea.
0: It really is. Yeah, you know,
1: they put carrots actually in like baby food,
0: tomato products. Do you know, I often have grated carrots into Mm -hmm. my like homemade marinara sauce just yeah. because my family has never been good vegetable eaters. So I would just grate one up and put it in there just because I'm like, okay, they're getting a whole carrot. Sometimes I would do a carrot and a zucchini. You remember that book from Jessica Seinfeld? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah.
1: Can't remember. Deceptively delicious. Is that what it was called? I can Something picture it like in my that. head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Back, it came out and, in- some point, like two thousand five. Yeah, I was doing it before that. Yeah, but that was like, wow, <laughs> we could put these wedges <laughs> in there. <laughs> they but,
0: don't even know they're there. They don't even know they're there. So if you don't want to take the carrot out, just shave it up, grate it up. There and you go it in there.
1: And um, she goes on to add, nobody wants salty soup. If you find out you've over salted your soup, or if you want to reduce the sodium in your broth, you can add a few wedges of raw apple or potato. Let it simmer for ten minutes, and then discard the wedges. The apple or potato will absorb the salt. That's a cool tip. I never heard that before. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of that one?
0: I didn't. And you know, when I get these tips, I do try to go like research them just to make sure I don't lead listeners astray. Right. And there is a little controversy over that tip. Really? Some people say it absolutely works and other people says it doesn't. Okay. I feel like a potato that might a work, lot work better than apple. A lot of people say that if you add, that you have to add acid to reduce salt. So you have to add lemon juice or vinegar. But... I'm not a chef. I don't know. I do know that if you actually
1: diced up your potato and added it and cooked it, it would decrease the saltiness because you'd have more in there. Uh huh. And who doesn't love potato in a soup? <laughs> <laughs> or throw in some rice anyway. <laughs> she also has one more tip. If you forget you're making pasta and you accidentally overcook it, that's happened to me, don't worry. Toss it in a hot pan with olive oil and give it a quick stir fry to crisp up the outside of the noodles. That's a
0: really good tip that was a great tip so at the end of each show we share a motivational quote from a listener and today's quote comes from Jane just had a wonder if this is the Jane I know from DDD and she lives in the UK so if this is you Jane in the UK hello and if it's some other Jane thank you for submitting a quote I love it when I get emails of quotes to use on the podcast it makes me really happy and I especially love it when people share stories or you know, personal experience that goes with the quote. So t- she says today, her quote that she's sharing is simple, but true. The quote is life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. You know, that's great. In light of our topic
1: for this week,
0: it really being is resilient
1: in the face of trauma.
0: Uh huh. I didn't even think about that. Well, I, I just was popped into my head
1: <laughs> adding this to
0: the show. So I'm sure she says, um, I'm sure many of you have encountered this famous quote by Charles R. Swindle. When everything feels stressful, life feels overwhelming. And I stop and I ask myself, is it really life? Or is it my current mindset or reaction to life? Sometimes I just need a good night's sleep, or a day at the dog park in the sunshine to have another go at whatever it is that is feeling stressful to me. Sometimes it's not even the one thing that is stressing me out but a million other little things. So I tackle all those little things. So I have the bandwidth to address that big thing. And suddenly it doesn't seem so stressful. Step back and ask yourself, is it life that is stressing me out? Or is it my reaction to life that is stressing me out?
1: That's huge because all of us have those things every day. Mm -hmm. Like when my ceiling light fell out, you know, how did I react to that? Right. It's just all those little things every time. And sometimes, I'm going to admit, sometimes we don't always react well. If you've had a bunch of little things, one more thing, and you're like, then you can just snap and lose it. Even me. Well, your bucket overflowed. My bucket was full. But, <laughs> but, but you know, we all have those little things. We just have to take that step back uh-huh. and think about how we're reacting to it. Because yep. that's, that's really, that's the part you can control. That's the only part you can control. That is true. You can Isn't only tr- control your reaction. Yeah. So that was good. Thank you for sharing that, Jane. So everybody, thank you for listening today and for joining us. You can also join our Facebook community. It's a great place. It's called Life Lessons with Jen and Sherry. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It gets automatically downloaded every week. And also, if you are on iTunes, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. And Sherry does share those with me. She sends them to me. I love reading them. Do you have a story to share for our Good News segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise that you want to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? You know, you can also introduce us to somebody else. If you know someone who would make a great guest, Yes, you know, send us an email about that as well, because we, you know, we love to hear from people.
0: We only Um, have so many connections. That's right. So you are our connection to other people that we aren't connected with. Yeah, and really anything, you know, anybody who knows something
1: would be worth sharing.
0: I mean, if you're going through life and you learn about something and you're like, huh, that was a good life lesson. Kind of like we did with Eddie Friedman last week when we interviewed him about, you know, when and how to get an attorney. Right. And that was for me, it was just a personal experience I had. And I was like, huh, I learned so much from this conversation. I need to share this with everybody else. So if, if you're going through life and you learn something and you think this would be helpful to other listeners, reach out to us. Yep, we want to know. So email us at connect at
1: com and listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. Until next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.